0: good afternoon everybody I want to welcome you and thank you for coming today Uh, I am Peter Russo I am the director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute and all of us are thrilled to have you here Um, before we begin if you're watching via the live stream and would like to join the conversation we'd love to hear from you so please tweet appropriate questions to us at hashtag Cato Uh, today we are thrilled to release the latest edition of the Cato handbook for policymakers this eighth edition has been a long time coming almost eight years since the last one. Now, I can't confirm that any blood was actually spilled. I can report that sweat and tears were emitted from various folks along the way, myself included. Um, But a quick note about distribution. Uh, While we do have hard copies here, uh, fully searchable PDFs are available now at cato.org. Copies will soon be available at Amazon and every Hill office in both chambers will be receiving a hard copy in the next few weeks, so look for that. we have the honor of having a few guests who would like to say a few words about the new release, And just to respect their time, first up will be Representative Jim Jordan. Mr. Jordan is a U.S. Representative from Ohio's 4th Congressional District. He's in his 10th year here in the House and was the first chairman of the powerful House Freedom Caucus. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, an organization comprised of House members who support, quote, open, accountable, and limited government the Constitution and the rule of law and policies that promote the liberty, safety, and prosperity of all Americans. Uh, we are pleased he was able to join us this afternoon. So welcome Jim Jordan. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, don't, don't clap, I haven't said anything yet, but
1: uh, it's good to, be, uh, good to be with Peter. Thank you and your team and all that uh, you do and for this uh, new policy guide. Uh, we, we look forward to looking at that. Jefferson said, when the people fear the government, there is tyranny. When the government fears the people, there is liberty. Think about that statement. Ask yourself which side's winning right now. I Mean think about it. And uh, that is what Cato's about: making sure that the, the second part of that statement is the one that actually rings true for this uh, this great country. So we we appreciate that. I thought I would just say this: when you think about the people fearing the government, the biggest thing we got to fear is the dead. Uh, how many of you saw the? I brought. A, I normally don't have props, but I brought a couple here. Uh, how many of you saw this headline? Time magazine is not something I usually read, but uh, read. But it was a year ago. And this number, $42,998.12, represents what all of us, every single American, all 300 and some million of us owe to pay off this this $20 trillion debt. Fascinating piece. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to read it. Um, Debt has doubled in the last 10 years. And uh, 10 years ago, the interest on the debt was about $230 billion. Anyone know what the interest on the debt is today? Twice the size. Anyone know what the interest is? $230 $230 billion, right, because the Fed, is, the, the, they've kept the rates so low, but in essence, what they've done is enabled the politicians to spend and not have to suffer the consequences, but at some point, we're going to have to. So, fascinating piece, and um, we've got to get after the out-of-control spending that we see in the federal government. The second thing we've got to deal with is um, this attack on personal liberties, um, the, the one example, and I'm, I'm it's appreciate you having me here today, appreciate the good work you're doing, but to actually share the stage for just a few minutes with uh, Congressman Amash uh, is special to me because here is a guy who has fought harder than anyone in the United States Congress when it comes to your constitutional rights, your First Amendment rights, your Fourth Amendment rights, and and the Bill of Rights in general. And so I, I, Justin is a good friend and he's the kind of guy we need in Congress. Making, and st- making the argument and making the case for how important protecting those, those liberties are. We've learned, <clears throat> for example, the Internal Revenue Service, what they are doing with uh, when they targeted people, and now we learn they have this technology, Stingray technology, where they can actually come into an area, get the cell phones to go through their device and find out actually where you are at. And they've used it 35 times. And we think they've used it without getting a probable cause warrant. So, the first one what's the IRS doing with this technology and why in the heck are they doing it without a warrant? Some of the things we're looking at and uh, looking into as well. So, um, again, thank you for the, the great work you're doing. Uh, we appreciate it um, and we appreciate uh, the opportunity to have this, uh, this policy handbook and get after this out of control spending and this assault on personal liberties we have seen over the last several years from, uh, from the previous administration. Last thing I'd mention is this. One of the other prop I brought, how many of you saw this headline, uh, Pentagon hit study revealing $125 billion in savings that could be achieved, at the, I mean, think about this. And the, 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 the conclusion of the article is this is money that could go into better weapon systems and to our troops, the people actually defending our country and not all the bureaucracy and redundancy and layers and layers over there at the Pentagon. That's exactly what we need. My guess is you probably talk about that a little bit in the book. But uh, again, an area we need to, uh, to look into. We've got a lot of work to do and it's great to have someone like Cato helping us get that work done for the American people who we came here to fight for. Thank you all very much.
0: Good, thank you, Mr. Jordan. Uh, Second, uh, uh, Representative Justin Amash. Mr. Amash is the U.S. Representative from Michigan's third congressional district. Mr. Amash came to Washington the first year I did, back in 2011, Uh, but he has made a more considerable name for himself as an articulate and principled defender of the Constitution. He serves as the chair of the House Liberty Caucus, whose mission is to, quote, facilitate and encourage policy discussion among members of Congress and their staffs from a constitutional pro-liberty perspective. What can be more admirable than that? Mr. Amash?
2: Well, uh, thanks so much for, um, for inviting me here to, uh, to speak briefly. And I just wanna say uh, thank you to the Cato Institute you do fantastic work, um, there's no one uh, more respected on the hill, um, at least as far as I'm concerned. Um, and uh, you know, anytime something comes up in uh, Washington, where I have a question about what might uh, libertarian policymakers uh, want to consider, I'll look to Cato Institute scholars. Um, You know, this uh, recently happened with the uh, immigration uh, refugee executive order. I I went to the Cato Institute to to see what was going on, and uh, David had a lot of uh, great work out there, and uh, I was able to use that and able to persuade a lot of people back home. Uh, I want to say thank you to Jim Jordan, too, I I have to say that. Um, Here's a guy who... uh, is one of the greatest advocates for liberty we have on Capitol Hill and uh, I think a lot of people don't recognize him in that light enough. Um, they know he's a conservative, a strong conservative, but he's been a strong defender of our civil liberties and I think he becomes more libertarian every year. So <laughs> hopefully uh, he stays here he stays here long enough where he's a full-fledged libertarian uh, uh, by the time he's done. So. Uh, I want to uh, thank Jim Jordan. Uh, what a fantastic leader uh, he he was of the House Freedom Caucus, and uh, one of the main reasons I decided to, to be a part of the House Freedom Caucus was because of his leadership. But um, you know, you and the Cato Institute uh, have provided fantastic leadership as well. And um, I don't know what I would do without the Cato Institute. I've been a longtime supporter. Um, You know, I receive all the mailings and read them. Um, You know, we receive a lot of things in the mail. We don't always read it, but I do read the stuff that comes from the Cato Institute because it is helpful, it is useful. Um, You touch on issues that a lot of other organizations in D.C. won't touch, and you take principled stands. Um, We need that, especially in this time. When you have one party controlling all parts of government, the White House, the Senate, uh, the House, uh, perhaps even the judiciary. You need to have principled voices out there. And the Cato Institute provides that. I haven't seen the Cato Institute change its tune since uh, President Trump took office. I have seen other organizations change their tune, where all of a sudden the things that were concerning to us when President Obama was in office are no longer concerning according to many of these other groups out there but the Cato Institute has stayed principled they've stayed true to their beliefs and can provide a real uh, guidepost for policymakers going forward so I just want to say thank you for doing what you do it makes a difference Um, it makes me feel less lonely here in Washington knowing, knowing that I have the Cato Institute out there, um, you know, spreading a lot of the same ideas, and um, I'm really uh, honored and blessed to be here and um, uh, thankful for everything you do. So I just want to say thank you again, and I hope all of our uh, members of Congress will use this uh, Cato handbook for policymakers. So thank you so much.
0: Uh, you will note that this is a lot bigger than ones you may have seen in the past and it's directly proportional to the amount of work that needs to be done up here so uh, forgive the heavy size if you need a cart to uh take your book back with you one could be arranged for you but uh our speakers and onto the book uh, david Bose is the executive vice president of the cato institute and has played a key role in the development of the institute and the libertarian movement he is the author of the libertarian mind a manifesto for freedom and the editor of Libertarian Reader. Bose is a provocative commentator and a leading authority on domestic issues such as education choice, struggle legalization, the growth of government, and the rise of libertarianism. Bone is, is a former editor of New Guard Magazine and was executive director of the Council for Competitive Economy prior to joining Cato in 1981, so raise your hand if you are alive in 1981. A few of us. Yes, good. Some of us might remember that. Uh, But more importantly, Mr. Bose provided the needed energy and zeal to get this book published and in your hands today. Uh, Next up will be Chris Edwards, who is the director of Tax Policy Studies at Cato and editor of Downsizing Government Org, a frequently updated and useful website for all Hill staffers. Uh, He is a top expert on tax and budget issues, and before joining Cato, he was a senior economist on the Congressional Joint Economic Committee and an economist with the Tax Foundation. Edwards has testified to Congress on fiscal issues many many times, including this very week, and his articles on tax and budget policies have appeared in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and other major newspapers. He holds an MA in economics and is the author of Downsizing the Federal Government and co-author of Global (coughs) Tax Revolution. Uh, Next will be Dan Ikenson, who is director of Cato's Herbert A. Stifel Center for Trade Policy Studies, where he coordinates and conducts research on all manner of international trade and investment policy. Eikenson has authored dozens of papers focusing his research on the U.S.-China trade relations, bilateral and multilateral trade agreements, and the U.S. manufacturing issues, uh, trade remedies, and much else. Eikenson is a co-author of the book Anti-Dumping Exposed, The Devilish Details of Unfair Trade Law, and he, too, has testified before congressional committees on a variety of trade issues and is also a frequent go-to scholar for Hill staffers. Uh, Eikenson holds an M.A. in economics from George Washington University. Uh, last but not least, David Beer is an immigration policy analyst at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. He is an expert on visa reform, border security, and interior enforcement, and his work has been cited most recently in the New York Times, but also in the Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Politico, and many other print and online publications. Uh, from 2013 to 2015, Beer served as a senior policy advisor for Congressman Raul Labrador, a name should be familiar a member of the House Judiciary Committee, Subcommittee on Immigration and Border Security. Mr. Beer has a BA in Political Science from Grove City College in Pennsylvania. Uh, each will speak for roughly five to 10 minutes or so and will endeavor to leave time for questions at the end and we are on schedule. Uh, I will have a short announcement at the conclusion of the event, but for now, with applause, please welcome David Bowes.
3: Thank you, Peter, and thank you Uh, Congressman Jordan and Congressman Amash. Um, I remember that Washington Post headline you talked about and what I really remember about the story is they didn't just hide or bury that information the way you put it somewhere in an obscure place on your website. They made the information classified They absolutely did not want anybody to know that there was a study that said you could save $125 billion. So yeah, if you're gonna fight spending here, you have a real challenge. And Justin Amash, if you wanna see a great um, speech from a congressman, go to our website and look for the Cato's Letter publication that included a speech that uh, Justin Amash gave uh, in the Cannon Caucus Room last summer to our Cato University. It's a great discussion of liberty and how you protect it in the House of Representatives. You can read any issue of the Washington Post or for all of you, you're here, you know that a lot of public policy is made by special interest groups contending for advantage uh, in Congress, in the regulatory agencies, in the White House and so on. Somebody in Washington needs to stand for the public interest, for justice, for liberty, uh, for the fundamental values of the Constitution and hopefully that comes from think tanks and particularly at the Cato Institute, our perspective on these issues is uh, what you could call classical liberal or libertarian or just an individual rights perspective, maybe just freedom philosophy. Uh, that's what our goal is. That philosophy as you know is not doing so well today in either party. So that's one of the reasons we produce the handbook. In particular, I notice powers claimed by one president are left in the hands of the next president, even though the first president's supporters might have less confidence in the successor's integrity and wisdom and judgment. And this is a point we've been making through several presidential administrations. Are you sure you want these powers to fall into the hands of the other party or a person you might not trust as much as today's president. So I'm hoping, and this is one of the themes in the handbook, that today Democrats and Republicans can agree that important decisions about our government and our lives should be made in the people's branch, not by one president, any one president acting on his own This handbook is the eighth edition. Um, We first published one in 1995 after the 1994 election that made us think some of our ideas on economics regulation spending might actually have a hearing on Capitol Hill and we quickly put together our first Cato handbook for Congress. The Washington Post wrote about it then and they called it a soup to nuts agenda to reduce spending kill programs terminate whole agencies and dramatically restrict the power of the federal government. Now that was true and it's true of this handbook too but it's also true that the handbook uh, includes hundreds of recommendations many of which are much more modest and practical than terminating whole agencies not that it should be impossible to terminate whole agencies surely it cannot be the case that the Congress has never created an agency that it later regarded as not necessary. In 1995, we were thrilled that uh, in the heady excitement of the new Republican House of Representatives, Uh, 60 Minutes did profiles of both Majority Leader Army and Budget Committee Chairman Kasich, and in both cases you could see the bright yellow Cato Handbook for Congress sitting on their desk, so that was nice. Back then, the Handbook had 39 chapters. This new Handbook has 80 chapters, and frankly, I didn't realize until Peter handed me one an hour ago, wow, that's heavy. Um, I'm sorry, you have to carry it back to your office. There is an online version, you can go and search the entire text online or you can read or print out individual chapters online at cato.org slash cato handbook. 80 chapters, several hundred policy recommendations, they cover a wide range of things, Iraq and Iran, seven chapters I think on healthcare, economic growth, article one issues, restoring the power of Congress to decide about policy, about regulation, about when the country goes to war, criminal justice, civil liberties, uh, trade policy, immigration policy, as you're gonna hear. Um, All of these things are covered in there. And one of the points that I make in the introduction to the book is that fidelity to the principles of free market and civil liberties is easy when times are easy. But the test of our faith in these principles comes precisely in times of economic crisis and foreign threats. That is exactly when reliance on the Constitution and its principles of limited government is most important. You see a lot in the Washington Post on NPR among congressional debate the suggestion, would you do nothing? We have this problem. Would you do nothing about it? Sometimes that is precisely what Congress should do. First, do no harm. However, there are a lot of problems in American governance today, and that's why we have hundreds of recommendations in here to do something. In many cases, it's to undo something, but there are plenty of actions that Congress ought to be taking and the administration also ought to be undoing, withdrawing, rescinding, or signing if legislation eventually gets there. And I hope the handbook will be helpful to you in that regard. Um, I wanna thank all the authors of the 80 chapters, not just the ones who are here today, but um, uh, the whole Cato policy staff contributed to this, and I wanna thank Peter Russo Um, Sam Summers and Maria Vargas for distributing it to all of you on Capitol Hill. Thanks.
4: I'm I'm Chris Edwards. Thank you very much for coming today. Uh, So Donald Trump has promised that he will balance the budget and cut wasteful spending. Uh, He said, uh, we will cut so much your head will spin. He uh, he also promised a big investment in infrastructure, and he promised major tax reform. Uh, I'm gonna discuss a few areas of fiscal policy that will be on the agenda uh, this year. So first, agriculture. Congress is scheduled to do a big farm bill next year, but it's already started holding hearings actually this week on what that farm bill will look like. Uh, We spend about 25 billion a year on farm subsidies. Uh, They're heavily slanted toward people at the top end, The biggest and wealthiest 15% of farmers get 85% of the subsidies. So the upcoming Farm Bill will be a good opportunity to see whether President Trump can follow through and actually cut some spending for special interests. Interestingly, President Bush vetoed the 2008 Farm Bill, uh, but he was overridden. The most recent Farm Bill in 2014 uh, eliminated some programs, but it added new ones. It was actually supposed to cut money from the uh, the CBO baseline. uh, But it didn't. We're actually spending billions more on the 2014 farm bill than was originally promised. So a good starting place for cutting farm subsidies uh, would be uh, to impose much tighter income limits on farm subsidy programs and to increase transparency. In a lot of cases, we don't know which the millionaires and billionaires are who are getting the subsidies. Uh, however, in the long run, I'd repeal all farm subsidies. That would be good for taxpayers and the economy, uh, and I think it would be good for the agricultural industry in the long run. So infrastructure, this is a big uh, issue on uh, Washington's agenda. Uh, President Trump promised a trillion-dollar spending plan. Uh, the good news, I think, is that I'm pretty sure that won't happen. I just don't see that, such a thing moving through Congress. Uh, but here's how Trump can fulfill his trillion-dollar uh, promise. If you look at uh, uh, the data, uh, private sector infrastructure spending is m- much vastly greater than government infrastructure spending. All the spending on pipelines and electric utilities and cell phone towers uh, are actually about, is actually about five times greater than all the government infrastructure spending uh, in highways and schools and the like. So the relevance is this, that if Trump follows through on his big business tax cut uh, that he's been promising, it will literally generate trillions of dollars more uh, private infrastructure spending in the U.S. economy uh, in coming years. The important thing to remember about infrastructure is that we do not need a big top-down national plan. Uh, for one thing, the vast majority of infrastructure uh, that, that the government owns in America is owned by state and local governments, not the federal government. Uh, so the highways, the interstates, the airports, all of that stuff is owned by state and local governments. And state governments can invest in all the infrastructure uh, they want. States have powerful taxing authority, uh, they can borrow money, uh, and states can privatize their infrastructure anytime they want uh, to increase investment. But the federal government can help. Uh, The federal government can repeal environmental uh, and labor laws that push up the costs of infrastructure. uh, And the feds can repeal uh, regulations that stand in the way of state governments privatizing their infrastructure. And I discuss uh, those issues uh, in the handbook. So uh, privatization uh, is a big opportunity for infrastructure uh, this year. Uh, And and the uh, biggest area uh, that uh, we may see some action is in aviation. Uh, The FAA uh, funds both airports and our air traffic control system, uh, and the FAA budget must be reauthorized by September, so there's going to be some action here. So if you look at airports, all U.S. commercial airports are owned by state and local governments, but around the world hundreds of airports have have been privatized. Uh, Half of Europe's airports uh, are now in the private sector. Uh, you know, th- this trend was started way back in the 1980s by Margaret Thatcher when she privatized uh, Heathrow. So the, the, trend, the global trend is to uh, uh, put airports in the private sector, allow them to run as businesses, don't subsidize them, and allow them to raise their own money to fund their own operations. So the relevance for the United States is that the federal government, in my view, should, should cut off subsidies to airports Uh, But the federal government ought to make reforms to allow airports to raise their own money for their own operations uh, and to uh, repeal regulations that stand in the way of states and cities privatizing their airports. So a big opportunity this year is air traffic control. Uh, a reform bill was passed through the House Transportation Committee last year. Uh, it would move our bureaucratic system uh, out of the government and into a private nonprofit uh, corporation. Uh, the, mill, the, the bill was modeled on a, uh, on a reform that passed in Canada uh, two decades ago now. The, can, the Canadian system is self-funded, it's highly efficient, it's very safe. Uh, and it's actually, the Canadian system's actually pulled ahead of our system uh, in terms of advanced uh, technology and the like. There's actually an a interesting story a couple weeks ago that SpaceX Corporation has launched satellites that will provide the world's first satellite-based air traffic control services. Uh, but they did it for a group of foreign air traffic control uh, systems led by Canada. Uh, airlines will get satellite-based tracking for the first time. The United States is not part of this system. This is a big opportunity that we appear to be uh, uh, missing right now. So hopefully a new Secretary uh, of Transportation, uh, Elaine Chao, uh, will get behind major uh, air traffic control uh, reform. So the last uh, area I want to talk about uh, is tax reform. Uh, both President Trump and Republicans uh, are pushing hard for tax reform. Uh, the, Republican, the House Republican bill uh, would, would chop individual tax rates and eliminate deductions and exemptions. Uh, Both the House plan and President Trump uh, have promised big cuts to the corporate income tax. Trump would slash our corporate tax rate all the way from 35% down to 15%. Uh, A big corporate tax cut, in my view, is just about the most important thing we can do to spur greater economic growth. Uh, Corporations account for about half of all business activity in America, and the lion's share of all R&D, international trade, and capital investment is done by big corporations. So I think the corporate tax rate uh, directly affects the willingness of uh, corporations, big and small, uh, to build new factories in America, to hire workers, uh, and to uh, boost American uh, incomes. The global average tax rate uh, on corporations has plunged uh, in recent years down to just 24%. Uh, Ours is 40% when you include state taxes. Uh, I think that's a really bad position um, for us to be in, very uncompetitive. So there's two big hurdles to tax reform, and I'll end on this. Um, The House House tax plan includes a provision called border adjustability that I'm sure most of you have heard of by now, uh, meaning that U.S. businesses would be denied a deduction for their uh, inputs to production uh, that are imported, uh, but their export uh, revenues would be exempted. Uh, That would be a radical shift in the tax base. Uh, Many American businesses would get hammered by it, and it's causing an uproar uh... no other country border adjusts their income tax and i think if we did it i think other countries would retaliate uh... and as trump said i think that provision is way too complicated i think the republicans ought to drop border adjustability the other big hurdle for tax reform is the deficit impact uh... border adjustment is partly supported because it would raise about hundred billion dollars a year uh, and it would raise that money again by hitting uh, U.S. businesses that import uh, goods and services. But the best way to deal with the deficit uh, impact of tax reform is to match tax reform with spending cuts. You know, let's match a corporate rate cut with cutting corporate welfare spending subsidies. Uh, the handbook is full of spending cut suggestions, as uh, David mentioned. And, uh, the, you know, the deficit impact Uh, of of tax reform can be limited uh, if Republicans focus on the most pro-growth or supply side uh, aspects of tax reform. If if you focus on supply side tax cuts, you generate strong dynamic effects in the economy, and the government ends up being a winner because revenues end up increasing. Uh, I think the most, uh, the the focus ought to be on uh, corporate tax rate cuts cutting the capital gains tax rate and repealing the estate tax, I think those will create the most powerful growth effects uh, and that's the direction the GOP ought to go and I'm gonna hand the podium over, I think, to, uh, uh, to our international trade specialist. Thank you.
5: Thanks for the transition, Chris. Thank you all for coming and staying. I'm Dan Eikenson, I'm the uh, director of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies at Cato. I've been in Cato for 16 years, and, and this past 12 months, uh, trade has I've never seen trade quite so topical. Um, unfortunately it's been topical for the wrong reasons. It's been denigrated, misunderstood, uh, it's been dragged through the ringer by politicians on the stump and, and, and by the media. Trade has been blamed for job losses, for runaway uh, trade deficits, for... Um, uh, loss of sovereignty for all sorts of social and, and, and economic ills that I, I, I don't think it's uh, guilty of, recently I learned that trade causes cancer. I, I, I got that information from a placard, uh, an NGO placard, at an anti-TPP rally, but uh, lots of people have uh, pretty, pretty, pretty uh, dismal views about, about trade. Um, in a presidential election, you, you tend to see this kind of uh, rhetoric and hear this kind of rhetoric. This year was different than previous years, going back to say 1992. This year, it came from both ends and across uh, the ideological spectrum, um, from Trump's economic nationalism on the right to Bernie Sanders' anti-capitalism on the left. Uh, there were lots of reasons to, to oppose trade and trade agreements. Um, I think political scientists are gonna mold this over for a while trying to figure out how we got here and, and how we produced the, these results. Um, I'm still kind of scratching my head why this year would, would trade come under such assault. Uh, the economy's doing you know fairly well relative to four years ago, relative to eight years ago for sure. Uh, in fact, there are uh, half a million more manufacturing jobs in the US economy today in, in November 2016 than in November 2012. There are about a million more manufacturing jobs than there were uh, in, in 2010 uh, at the nadir following the recession. Um, the deficit, uh, the trade deficit as a share of the economy is uh, at an almost record low for this millennium. Uh, it's 2.7 percent of, of GDP was the trade deficit. It was 3.3 percent four years ago, 4.7 percent eight years ago. Currency manipulation, we hear the president talking about doing something about currency manipulation. Well, the Chinese and Japanese haven't intervened in currency markets for over a decade. This is an old, old story. Uh, there, if there's any inter- intervention in China, it is to prevent uh, the, the currency from uh, depreciating because there's a lot of capital flight. Uh, it just seems that there's a lag between economic reality and what, what, what uh, the president and what other politicians are talking about. There, it seems like it a, takes a little time to catch up. Maybe trade is, uh, is a, just another battleground in, in the culture war. Whatever it is, trade lends itself to misunderstanding and to mythology, which is exploited, I think, uh, on the political stump. Some of the prominent myths that Congress needs to be aware of uh, and needs to uh, refute uh, are ones like trade is this competition between us and them, Uh, Team USA against Team China, Team USA against Team Mexico. where exports are our points, imports are the foreign team's points. The trade account is the scoreboard. We have a deficit, so we're losing, and of course we're losing because the foreign team cheats. That—that's the narrative. Uh, It's—it's not—not—not uh, not correct. Trade is just the culmination, the aggregation of of billions of transactions taken on a daily basis by people trying to obtain value through a transaction. Uh, it's not a competition. It's—it's it's cooperative. Half of the value of U.S. imports intermediate goods and capital equipment used by uh, U.S. businesses. Um, Another, the the notion that the deficit means we're losing at trade is also incorrect. The deficit doesn't reflect trade policy. We've had a trade deficit uh, for 42 straight years in the United States. That reflects the fact that foreigners like to invest in the United States. We have the world's most demanded reserve currency. It's a relatively safe place to invest. Uh, we run tr- trade deficits, current account deficits, which is the flip side of the capital account surplus, uh, and, and and that's why that happens. The economy has grown, uh, uh, you know, w- with with this this trade deficit. Much too much is made out of the deficit. Uh, much too much political hay. Um, this idea that trade only benefits the rich and corporations. This was kind of Bernie Sanders's line. That's. <coughs> It's just not right. Uh, Trade benefits small companies relative to large companies. Large companies can endure trade barriers and regulations. Smaller ones have a harder time. Trade liberalization is better for smaller companies relative to multinationals. And trade liberalization is better for lower-income Americans relative to wealthier Americans. Um, uh, Our our, our tariff policy is a regressive tax. Uh, uh, We have relatively low taxes on average, but we have tariff peaks on clothing, footwear, food, the components of shelter, housing, basically life's, life's basic necessities are taxed at a higher rate, uh, and it's a bigger burden on lower income Americans. So progressives should be in favor of trade liberalization. Um, the idea that um, trade and globalization killed manufacturing, come on, it's always a predicate for industrial policy or tariffs, manufacturing's thriving and it has been thriving. Uh, there is, uh, we, we peaked out uh, in employment in 1979 at 19.4 million workers and have been on a downward trajectory since then. But year after year, uh, manufacturing sets a new record. Excuse me. Sets new records with respect to revenue, um, uh, return on investment, exports, imports, um, it's been doing quite well. We, uh, in, in 1953, manufacturing accounted for 28% of the global, of, of the U.S. economy. It was a driver of the economy. Uh, today, it's about 12%. But we produced $110 uh, billion worth of output and manufacturing value added in 1953. Last year, $2.1 trillion worth of output, where we only, can- manufacturing is only a smaller segment of the economy. That's, a, that's six times greater in real terms. So these myths that we hear on the stump uh, don't have any real basis in reality. Uh, we need to do something about people who lose their jobs. We need to have uh, overcome labor market frictions, uh, but that is not to be laid at the feet of trade. It's not trade's fault. Trade has one job, and that is to grow the pie, and I think it's done a very good job at that. Um, let me just get to a couple of the recommendations that we have in the in the handbook. We made many of them. Uh, i 'm just going to just mention two, uh, and then i 'm going to uh, add one more that I would have put in there had had this come come on my radar sooner um, let 's cut tariffs on intermediate goods I mean really, every couple of years, although there 's been a hiatus for the past four years, we have something called the miscellaneous tariff bill where uh, it, it inputs to u s manufacturing the, the duties on them are suspended for a period of a couple of years, provided that there 's no domestic production and that uh, doing so doesn't deprive the customs service of more than $500,000. That's not much. Um, and Congress does like to congratulate themselves for, for that, that legislation. It's a little bit. It's a drop in the bucket. Let's just get rid of them altogether. Half of the value of imports, $1.1 trillion worth of imports last year, are intermediate goods. If we get rid of the taxes, and this becomes a much more, the United States becomes a better destination, a more attractive destination for investment. Uh, U.S. companies compete more effectively. Let's get rid of it. There's no reason to have those those barriers. Um, that there's, that's elaborated upon in the in the, uh, in the uh, handbook. The other thing is, let's resist efforts to expand buy American. We have buy American provisions in place. All that does is ensure that taxpayers get a smaller bang for their buck. If we're talking about a big infrastructure spending package, um, we should not be limiting. Uh, How that money should be spent, uh, and we should be—it should be open to competition from foreign providers. Right now, we have uh, exemptions for free trade agreement partners and for countries that are signatories to what's called the Government Procurement Agreement. We need to expand those exemptions. Uh, You know, the Panama Canal was just widened uh, last year. They completed that project for these big post-Panamax ships, these huge ships. There's only seven ports. Seven out of 44 ports on the Atlantic and Gulf coasts, that can accommodate those post-Panamax ships because they're not deep enough. Why? Because they can't be dredged. Why? Because dredgers have to be American, they have to, the, the dredging the equipment has to be built in America, and there's a monopoly. Uh, so we need some competition in order to make those, those dollars go further. Finally, the last thing I just want to say, um, under the Constitution, Article um, 1, Section 8, confers on the Congress power to regulate foreign commerce. Uh, Over the years, over the past 100 years, there's been a shifting, a slight delegation of some of those authorities to the executive branch by statute. It's been done over the years with the the thought in mind that the president would perhaps resort to raising tariffs in an emergency situation, a national security crisis, a surge in imports, um, a a health threat, a safety threat. Um, very rarely has it, has it been invoked other than the anti-dumping, countervailing duty laws. But President Trump, his, his rhetoric suggests that he's looking for some of these statutes to invoke to impose duties and tariffs. Senator Mike Lee had some legislation that came out recently, the Global Trade Accountability Act, which would try to bring back, rein in some of those authorities and bring them back where they properly belong in Congress. You might want to take a look at the legislation if you haven't yet, get a sense of what he has in mind. The idea would be that Congress would vote on any of these unilateral actions uh, that that the president uh, might take before they can take effect. I guess you would need two-thirds of both chambers (laughs) if that were to be introduced right now to overcome a veto, but uh, that's good sense legislation, I think, and you might want to take a look at that. I'll stop there. Thank you.
6: Thank you all for being here. As Peter said, I am one member of Cato's two-man immigration team. Uh, My name is David Beer. My colleague Alex Narasta and I handle all things border security, interior enforcement, or visa reform. And we are more than happy to discuss any of those topics with you at your convenience. As a candidate, President Trump focused very heavily on securing the border. So let me first talk about that issue. From 1776 until 1921, nearly a century and a half, neither the states nor the federal government placed any arbitrary quotas or limits on the number of people who could come to the United States. Under this system, illegal immigration was almost unheard of. Illegal immigration only became a problem in the 1920s after Congress imposed the first worldwide quota that cut legal immigration by 80%. In those days, people understood why people entered unlawfully. As this was the alcohol prohibition era, they referred to it as bootlegging in people. Just as prohibition resulted in bathtub gin and smuggled liquor, so the prohibition on most types of legal immigration resulted in illegal immigration. And everyone knew it. The Great Depression put an end to this illegal flow for about a decade, but the issue resurfaced during the post-World War II economic boom. This time, Congress adopted a different approach. It expanded and deregulated a work visa program known as the Bracero Guest Worker Program. This approach had a massive impact. The number of people each border guard was apprehending, which is the best way to estimate the total number of people trying to enter, fell from 570 in the five years uh, before 1954 to just 62 from 1955 until 1965. In 1965, however, Labor unions pressured Congress to end the Bracero program. Border Patrol fiercely fought them on this, telling Congress that it would lose control of the border if we did away with the Bracero program. Congress ignored them, and by 1968, each agent was catching twice as many people crossing the border as it was in 1965. By 1975, it was six times as many, back again to nearly 500 people per agent. It was not until 2008, with a housing bubble bursting and 10 times as many border agents, that America would ever see as few people crossing the border as it saw during this Bracero period. Illegal immigration remains at a historic low, and we already have far more enforcement than was necessary in the 1960s to control illegal immigration. So a new robust guest worker program for lesser skilled immigrants would finish off this problem. We do already have a couple of guest worker visas for these lesser skilled immigrants, the H2A for agriculture and the H2B for non-agriculture and their expanded use since the 1990s has had a noticeable impact on illegal immigration. But both programs are so heavily regulated that the Department of Labor often fails to approve workers in time for the seasonal uh, crops. Both visas are also only for seasonal jobs, which means they cannot be used for any job lasting longer than a year, which of course cuts off almost All jobs in the economy. The H 2B visa has a cap of 66,000, which has not been adjusted since it was created in 1986. The H 2A visa has no cap, but even if we reform the H 2A to make it workable, we cannot hope to end illegal immigration by focusing only on agriculture, because more than 80% of unauthorized workers work in non-agricultural jobs. This inability of the federal government to anticipate the needs of the economy justifies federalizing at least some of the decisions about who to bring to the United States and under what regulations. Allowing states to decide how a certain portion of work visas are used will take advantage of local knowledge, and allow the kind of ongoing necessary adjustments that the federal government has failed to make. Allowing states to sponsor an immigrant to work there would be, from an administrative perspective, not that much more difficult than the current employer sponsored programs. These workers are already required to live near their place of employment. Very few, less than 3%, overstay or violate the rules of the programs because the opportunity to come to the United States legally is so valuable. States could identify their labor labor needs and fill them legally rather than illegally. But a robust legal immigration system is only one part of the solution. We also need a way for people who break the rules to get right with the law. The key to any legal regime, whether it's tax law or immigration law is self-compliance. You want people who make mistakes to have a way to correct them and an incentive to do so. Right now, however, if an immigrant lives in the U.S. illegally for more than six months, they cannot go home and return for at least three years. If they're here illegally for over a year, they're banished for a decade. This ban essentially traps them in the US. They have no incentive to go home and do it the right way. If we repealed these requirements, known as the three and 10 year bars, then some 6 million people who are married to US citizens or have other US family members who can sponsor them would be able to get right with the law without the need for a special program. We also need a way to deal with the other long-term residents of the United States, particularly the Dreamers who were brought here as children. But repealing the three- and 10-year bars would be a big help in reducing illegal immigration going forward. For all guest worker programs, there is a concern about how to deal with their impacts on native-born workers. The single best thing that Congress can do to protect native workers is to protect the rights of foreign-born workers to negotiate fairly with their employers. Right now, it is almost impossible for an H-1B high-skilled worker or an H-2A or H-2B to leave their employer that brought them over so they cannot negotiate fairly for wages. They are dependent on the government to protect them. That hasn't worked and will not work If you can leave to get the market wage, then you can't be paid below the market wage. On this point, H-1Bs are particularly disadvantaged because if their employer sponsors them for a green card to stay permanently, they can extend their status indefinitely, but they are stuck with that employer for decades in some cases. They cannot get a better paying job or start a business. Even certain promotions are banned their wives cannot work, if their children reach adulthood while they're waiting for a visa, for a green card, the child is deported. America treats its highest skilled immigrants worse than it treats its lowest skilled refugees. This is why many are going to other countries like Canada. Besides reversing the policies that I just mentioned, Congress should repeal what are known as the per country limits. Each country, no matter how large or small, is allocated an equal share of the green cards that allow immigrants to stay in the country permanently each year. This means that a large country like India has the same limit as a tiny country like Estonia. It's unfair and it results in incredible wait times for high-skilled Indian workers on H-1Bs, leaving them stuck in this terrible position for decades. The House voted to repeal the limits in 2011, and it should do so again. I see I am over my time, but thank you for yours.